Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen. This edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 26th of July. And coming up this week, we have another of Margaret's buildings of significance in the city, We've got a piece about recycling used petals in the Ganges in India. We have an author also English writing about uh, heroes, one of Cynthia Townsend's short stories, a bit of a risque poem from The Spectator, and Dave telling us all about the Resource Centre Summer Garden Party, which was last weekend, plus, of course, all of your usual features, such as a different sort of sports post bag. But we start with a review of the last week's local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Five of Coventry's parks have all been awarded the prestigious green flag in recognition of their excellence. Coombe Park, the War Memorial Park, Orsley, Longford and Caledon Castle Park have all received the green flag award the International Quality Mark for Parks and Green Spaces awarded by Keep Britain Tidy. Coombe Abbey Park has been awarded the green flag for the last 16 years and for the second year running they have also been awarded the Green Heritage Site Accreditation supported by Historic England for the management of its historic features. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Parks said it's fantastic news that Coventry's parks have again been awarded green flag status and recognised as excellent green spaces. I'd like to congratulate the teams who have put in all the hard work to make this happen and to all our staff who work so hard in making our green spaces the beautiful places they are for residents and visitors to our city. Tributes have been paid to Coventry music legend Vince Hill who has died at the age of 86. Talented Vince was born in Holbrook in May 19, sorry, April 1937. He attended Hen Lane School and sang his first notes in front of an audience at a pub in Margate, aptly named Prospect. When he left school, he tried his hand as a baker and even a coal miner, but his pathway would take him to singing professionally. The taste of singing had given him the t- and he took it seriously, having lessons with Ivy Fittin. Soon he was singing around in the local pubs and clubs. In an interview with Coventry Music Museum curator Pete Chambers, Vince said Hen Lane Club, the Bantam, the Unicorn Club and Rowley's Green still held vivid memories for him. He also started to stretch his wings through the Cox Street Club, Radford Club, all around the Midlands and as far as Sheffield in Yorkshire. Vince continued his craft in the Royal Signals Band during his national service and as part of the cast of the musical Floridora, later joining the Teddy Foster Band in 1958. His first real taste of fame, however, came when he became part of Len Beadle's singing group, The Raindrops. They featured on the BBC radio show Parade of the Pops, basically singing the current songs of the day. He left The Raindrops in 1961 to go solo, although he continued to appear on Parade of the Pops and other shows such as TV's Stars and Garters programme. 
1963, he signed to Pi Records and gained his first chart entry with The Rivers Run Dry. He moved to Columbia and more hits followed like Take Me To Your Heart Again, Heartaches and Mercy Sherry. It was his next hit, however, that would prove life-changing for Vince. After much persuasion, Vince convinced Columbia Records that a song featured in The Sound of Music could be a hit for him. Vince was right, and Edelweiss became a huge hit, peaking at number two in the charts. That became his signature tune for the rest of his career, a career that saw him top the bill at the Palladium and the talk of the town. It remains all systems go for Coventry's proposed Gigafactory, despite new plans for a huge electric vehicle battery plant to be built in Somerset. There have been fears a proposed West Midlands Gigafactory south of Coventry, a project joint ventured by Coventry City Council and Coventry Airport, might hit the skids, given the sheer scale of Tata's £4 billion investment in Somerset. The new factory planned by Tata, owner of Coventry-based Jaguar Land Rover, is likely to have capacity to build around half of all the electric vehicles' batteries needed in the UK. But Councillor Jim O'Boyle, the city's jobs and regeneration boss, said it was definitely full steam ahead for the West Midlands. Mr O'Boyle went a step further to suggest that they were close to securing a major deal with a leading manufacturer and unlocking a huge amount of investment. We've had discussion with six different manufacturers, very detailed discussions with one in particular, he said. I feel very confident about that. If the government wants to retain automotive companies and build up renewable opportunities, we do need to build these battery facilities in the UK. Ours is the only one with planning permission and ready to go. It's got cross-party support across the West Midlands, and I'm very confident that we'll get a deal over the line very soon. Councillor Boyle said Tata's proposal, which is likely to create 4,000 jobs, was a huge boost for the UK automotive industry and one that might even end up creating positions at JLR's hubs in Coventry and Warwickshire. I'd like to think so because what it does is show JLR's commitment to the UK, he said. They're investing heavily both in this country and in this industry. They're investing in their company and their footprint elsewhere whether it's in the West Midlands or the North West. We'll definitely benefit from that. That is inevitable. As the electric automotive industry matures and new products come on stream, I think you'll see an increase in sales there and production. I think it's a win-win for the industry, and I think Coventry and Warwickshire will benefit from it. There's no doubt about that. Seven Trent says it is well positioned to deal with the summer months. The water giant says its reservoirs are 10% higher than this time last year. The BBC has reported that reservoirs were on average 77% full after average rainfall in most of June and plenty of rain so far this month. It's a far cry from the situation this time last year when the UK baked in a heatwave. Seven Trent was forced to closely monitor the situation last summer, but did not enforce a ban, instead asking households to be mindful of their water use. 
In a full update to shareholders on July the 19th, Seven Trent said, We have made a strong start to the year operationally and with reservoir levels at 77%, more than 10% higher than at this point last year, are well positioned for the summer months. In regard to finances, the update told shareholders that its debt levels compared to equity were lower than most other water suppliers. Chief Executive Liv Garfield said, We're pleased to have made a good start to the year as we continue to focus on delivering the operational, environmental and financial performance our stakeholders expect of us. We recognise that there is more we can do and we are committed to going further, faster to deliver the best possible outcomes for our customers and the environment. Coventry councillors have refused permission for a 544-bed student accommodation that has been strongly opposed by neighbours. Developers wanted to knock down a two-storey office building at Westwood Way for purpose-built student flats six storeys high at their tallest point. The council's lead planning officer said plans should be approved as the block would respect the scale and character of the surrounding area. But the scheme was met with an outcry from locals who lodged 86 objections and signed petitions in their hundreds opposing it. Residents speaking at a meeting on Thursday the 20th of July claimed the block would be an eyesore and dominate the skyline. It's a cramped development that will be visually oppressive and will materially harm the amenities of residents, summarised one of the five who contributed statements. All three local councillors who had sent in petitions against the scheme were also there in person to speak against it. Councillor Marcus Lapser highlighted the effect on people whose gardens back onto the land. This would be like having a student village next door, he said. James Gillespie of Developers Gilltown, speaking for the plans, said, 20 evergreen trees would be planted at the back of the block and would reach the size of a two-storey building by the time students move in. With regards to scale, the building steps from three storeys closest to residents and is only six storeys at more than 70 storeys away from the nearest house, he added. Mr Gillespie also pointed out that the plans had been recommended for approval with no objections from various council departments. Council officers also said they had no concerns about the building's separation distance from residents. But after a lengthy debate taking in points ranging from parking spaces to the need for purpose-built accommodation, Coventry councillors voted to reject the scheme by 5 to 2. A follow-up discussion to confirm the reasons for rejection with officers ruled some concerns out as they wouldn't be upheld on appeal. A man who allegedly caused chaos in a protest in Coventry has been attacked as he lay on the floor. Daniel Knorr was attacked while protesting in an incident that has again put him in the spotlight. Footage from the protest group Just Stop Oil shows him being hit and then kicked on the floor. It came as he protested in London with other activists in a road blockage that was causing severe traffic delays. The victim was allegedly at the centre of the chaos at the Dippy Dinosaur display in Coventry. He and another person allegedly caused chaos at the exhibition and they were charged with intending to damage property following the incident back in April. 
the activist has been in the headlines on many occasions. He also had to be carried off the pitch by England wicketkeeper Johnny Bairstow last month after storming the pitch in a cloud of orange powder paint. Just off oil supporters are disrupting roads in central London during the 13th work of continual resistance against new oil, gas and coal. The attack on Nor came after reports of a car accident on the road that Just Stop Oil said the Mercedes was caught up in. Holding a pack of frozen peas to his head where he had been kicked, Daniel, a biochemistry student at Oxford University, said, I haven't said anything to the police and I don't plan to. I'm afraid the police might go after this man. The Metropolitan Police said they were investigating the alleged assault and will not tolerate violent behaviour. Daniel was arrested in April at the Herbert Art Gallery where he allegedly jumped over the barrier surrounding Dick of the Dinosaur. He was tackled by security staff and taken away in handcuffs. A commentary post office will close and move to a new location with longer opening hours. The post office has agreed to relocate the charter post office after the new postmaster requested that the branch be moved to his nearby convenience store. The move comes after the previous postmaster retired after 41 years of service. The current branch at 290 Charter Avenue will close on Monday, August the 21st at 5pm, with the new branch opening on Wednesday the 30th of August at 1pm. In the interim, alternative branches include Canley Post Office in Cannon Park Shopping Centre, and Jardine Post Office in Jardine Crescent. The new opening hours will be 9am to 6pm Monday to Friday and 9am to 2pm on Saturdays. There will be a post office serving point alongside the retail counter. The same products and services will be available. The proposed premises will have a wide automatic door and level access at the entrance and room for a wheelchair to manoeuvre inside. Parking will be available right outside. Residents have spoken of how noise and shouting woke them in the middle of the night after a large sinkhole appeared in a Coventry Road on Sewell Highway at around 4am last Monday. Seven Trent confirmed that the sinkhole opened up after a large pipe burst on the busy road in Wykeham. Water had been seeping down the road since the early hours as workers tried to minimise the damage to vehicles and properties nearby. Brothers Tommy and Oliver Roberts watched the incident unfold in the early hours of the morning. Tommy was woken after hearing noises and was shocked to see this huge sinkhole only metres from his home on Sewell Highway. He said, I woke in the middle of the night and I heard noises outside like cars driving over gravel and sirens. I looked out the window and I saw a car in a sinkhole, so I woke my brother and my mum and then we heard the water leaking out all down the highway. Brother Oliver said, I could see loads of bits of gravel and stones on the floor. Tommy pointed to the sinkhole and there was a big red car in a massive hole. I'm not sure how the hole came, but I think it happened in the middle of the night. Police were there and I heard a lot of shouting. Tommy said, it's been going on for a while now. There are trucks picking up cars and trying to clear up the mess, but it's made a mess all down the highway, and they had to block the road off so cars cannot drive down it. Amy Jones, Senior Distribution Technician at Seven Trent, said, We're really sorry to anyone affected by one of our larger pipes bursting on Sewell Highway this morning. Our teams attended the site quickly and have managed to isolate the pipe to minimise the damage caused and keep all of our customers on supply. 
It's now our priority to gain access to the damaged pipe and start the repair. A full road closure is in place to keep our technicians and other road users safe. Work is underway on a new 1.5 million refurbishment at a Coventry school, which will see the creation of specialist new classrooms and vital new places for prospective students. Dealey Construction, headquartered in Coventry, has started work on the project at secondary school Finham Park 2. A new multi-use games area will be built while the existing Edwards Keep block will be transformed with the creation of two design and technology classrooms, a new STEM classroom which is science, technology, engineering and mathematics and a room for teachers to prepare learning materials. The schools say the classrooms will feature the latest technology and professional standard equipment including laser cutters, 3D printers and other industry standard kit. The food technology classroom, which I think is cookery, will also be kitted out with modern appliances used in professional kitchens. Finning Park 2 say the new facilities will enable it to accommodate an additional 60 pupils responding to increased demand for school places across Coventry, while delivering education to prepare students for the modern-day world of work. Head teacher Will Keddy said, Design and technology is a strength we already have at the school, and we offer alternative courses such as engineering that you won't find at many other schools. This new space will allow us to build on that strength of what we can offer students. It will also enhance how we can deliver the STEM skills. STEM subjects can lead to important career paths where there is a demand for skilled individuals. So having a high quality STEM facility will make a massive difference for the young people in this community. We're committed to giving students the time of their lives. It's not just about courses and exams, it's about offering experiences that give them memories for life and prepare them for their future career too. By having cutting-edge technologies in areas like design and technology, STEM and food technology, we are perfectly positioned to deliver on that commitment. Supported by Glancy Nichols Architects, the project is set to be ready in time for the next M academic year this September. A Coventry Working Men's Club will be partly turned into a 26-bedroom bed and breakfast, despite concerns from residents over parking. Wyking Working Men's Club will have its first floor, including a big function room and disused committee room, converted into overnight accommodation. The club will keep its ground floor function room, lounge and games room, and undergo an upgrade with new disabled facilities and decoration. Midlands company Westbourne Leisure plans for a change of use on the Anstey Road venue got the nod from councillors last Thursday, the 20th of July. Council officers had recommended the scheme for approval, but it received seven letters of opposition from residents. Objectors claimed that the club's use already makes parking in the area difficult, and the B&B would see parking on the site dramatically increase. Others raised different concerns, including fears the hotel would be used as a large HMO, denied by the company at the meeting and in an officer report. A petition against the scheme with 21 signatures and sponsored by Ward Councillor Angela Hopkins was brought before the planning committee. 
Councillor Hopton said residents were very apprehensive about the impact on the area, including parking, which is at a premium on the red route of Anstey Road. Currently, locals are able to use the parking facilities at the club, and they worry if this development goes ahead, they will no longer be able to use this, she told the meeting. Karen Stevens from Westbourne Leisure said the investment made by the company in the club is absolutely massive. It's really important that we don't lose any of the things that we do for the community now, she said. Using its rooms for other income streams is against company policy, she confirmed, and the maximum stay will be 14 days. Outlook News. Right, thank you to Elaine for helping me with the news. I hope you found something there that you found vaguely interesting. Um, not many announcements today. Um, sunrise and sunset, 5.18 a.m., sunset, 9.08 p.m. So the days are getting very slightly shorter. But at least the sun's been shining today, so that's quite nice. Um, now, last week, I think I mentioned some things about what's on coming up, um, taking you through to the end of July. Then there's a couple more at the beginning of August. Um, the same thing, actually, but in two different places. As You Like It, a three-act play is being performed in Coventry Cathedral on the 3rd of August. Now, I'm not quite sure who's doing that, but at the same time, As You Like It is on at the Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford, and that is the RSC. I have actually been to see that, and it's quite a strange um, performance of it because it is set as a group of very old actors looking back to when they made the play years ago um, so all the actors that are in it are quite elderly but it was quite amusing and I did enjoy it but it's on to the 5th of August if you should want to go now talking about going to things um, later in the programme we have got a report from Dave about the summer garden party and Hugh's here and I'm sure he's going to mention it in some shape or form Good guess. Oh, <laughs> don't tell me I'm wrong. No, 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 oh, no. Okay, it, was, it was absolutely the right guess. I was going to mention the Summer Garden oh, Party. Good. I'm sure David's got his own take on it. Let's put it this way. We were blessed with many, many, many litres of liquid <laughs> sunshine. Uh, it was, uh, it was yeah. a, bit, a bit foggy uh, yeah. around the edges. Um, but that said, we were very pleased, all told, with the mm -hmm. turnout. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we raised... Uh, 750 pounds, which is not, which is somewhat less than we normally make, yeah. but not, not uh, it's, it's not a surprise it's, particularly. So, but uh, we, we was great to see so many people there, and I have to put, uh, here give a shout out to uh, the many volunteers, of which one is sitting in this room, uh, who helped um, make uh, the day such a success. Uh, I couldn't have done without uh, so many people in the kitchen uh, and uh, and people who were serving, and also everybody who helped out on the, um, uh, on the table and and just the whole thing so thank you to all the volunteers um, uh, and indeed the staff who were sort of volunteering because well, it's a Saturday yeah. oh well, not, uh, not me I don't, I, don't, I don't get to thank myself <laughs> um, get to beat myself but not thank myself um, and uh, so uh, actually it was, a, it was a really good really nice event and um, uh, I'm, I'm assured that all the food went down went down very well um, now one of the things that uh, that we were um, flogging uh, at the Summer Garden Party uh, was the Grand Summer Raffle, mm. the tickets for that. Now, the tickets now are available. Uh, they cost a pound each, or you can get a book for five pounds. <gasps> and that, do you know how many tickets there are in that book? There might be 
five. There are maybe? five in that book. There are no discounts for bulk buying. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do it. No. <laughs> yes, it's very, very. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, we have some terrific prizes for it. Uh, so the first prize is two hundred and fifty pounds in oh, cash, um, and that has been donated by Jeff Harris, who uh, you may know is a very great friend of the charity um, and who uh, owns Coventry Plumbing and Heating Supplies. So uh, thanks to him for that. And then we have we have uh, not one for the vegans here. We've got the meat tray special oh, from right. Cumberland Meats, uh, and then oh, great prizes: um, ice hockey tickets, uh, two tickets for the pantomime at the Belgrade, um, hairdressing, um, a, a massage or fitness session, a bottle of prosecco, uh, a ten-pound cafe gift token, and a giant box of craft stuff from Hobbycraft. Mm. So we've had some um, have some. Uh, terrific prizes uh, donated for this raffle. So, uh, time to get your your groove on. Um, if you want to buy raffle tickets, yeah, well, obviously, I'm going to say yes, 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 please buy raffle tickets. But what I'd really also like you to do is to sell raffle tickets. Um, if you think that you can flog them off to family or friends um, or even strangers in the street, um, come in and... <laughs> Grab a handful uh, from reception. They're all available in reception, and they will. Uh, uh, and, and then you can sell them on. And then when you bring back the ticket stubs, um, you can hand over the money, and uh, and uh, all will be good. So thank you very much uh, for that. If you need any more information about that, do give us a call. You know the number by now: oh two four seven six seven one. Seven five two two. And the draw date. Is and the draw date. Very good question there, Elaine. Uh, the ninth of September. That's the ninth of September. So we haven't got huge, huge amount of time, but we do have. Um, uh, well, we want to see if we can get as many of the two and a half thousand tickets sold as possible, because that would be a big boost. So thank you very much. Um, now uh, I think Joe talked about this a little bit last week, uh, but. Um, we're getting a little bit bigger these days, and we've got a few more people who are joining uh, joining our groups, which is absolutely part of the plan. Um, where people are joining from, uh, i.e. where they live, and um, some of the groups that they want to attend, uh, means that the buses are slightly com more complicated than they have been of late. Um, uh, so there's, you know, there's a few issues, which we are working very hard on to try and sort out and try and find the best way to do. And it may mean adjusting um, some of the times of, um, of some, some of the activities by half an hour or so. We might like push one activity back half an hour or bring another one forward half an hour um, if, if that's what we need to do just to give us a fighting chance. Many of you will be aware that uh, Coventry is part, being part of West Midlands Transport um, uh, uh, has access to the on-demand service. And uh, if you are more able um, or you know more confident, um, it's after a pretty shaky start. It has to be said. It seems to have settled down a bit. So uh, what this service is is basically you call them up uh, and they will come to your door or as near to your door as they can possibly get. Uh, you get on the bus uh, and then they, there may be some other passengers on there, uh, but they will bring you in then to the centre uh, if that's where you want to do. You do have to pre-book and there is a number for it which I forgot to bring in. But anyway, we can supply that number, the on-demand bus. If you're, if you're tech savvy, uh, there is an app as well that you can download. Mm. I think it's called West Midlands On Demand so, mm. uh, or something along those lines. Anyway, I would... 
if you feel confident enough, you might fancy having a go at that. Tell you what, it's a bit cheaper than us as well. It's one pound fifty each uh, each way. So, uh, whereas we have to charge six pounds return, uh, they basically three pounds return. Yeah. So, um, if things are a little tight, it might be might be. We can't guarantee that they will get you here absolutely bang on time, and you might mm. sometimes have to wait a little bit when you're leaving, but. By and large, um, things have settled down a great deal. So, if that's something that might appeal financially to you, or you know, you think, oh well, I could give that a go because uh, we can, you know, it'll relieve the pressure off the buses a bit, then uh, that would be a good thing. Um, we're very happy to help you sort that out, work out how to do it if you want to. So, just give us a call um, and speak to one of the team here at the, at the centre, and we will help you out. Now. Oh, it's nearly holiday time. That's what it is. Oh. Yeah, yeah, well, my holidays, actually. Yeah. I'm going. Oh, where were you going? I'm going to, well, I'm going to Sitges, which is just south of Barcelona, but we're driving there and driving down through through France to get Do you there. like the heat? I love the heat. Oh, that's all right. That's dropping now. Yes. yes. It's, it's, it's going down from a, you yes. know, from 40 and above down to around 30, which is a very decent temperature as yes. far as I'm concerned. Or even a little bit above, but in yes. the 30s. In the 30s, which is much better than in the 40s. Yes. Anyway, so um, I am going to be out of the office from the 4th of August. That's a Friday, so I won't be in on the 4th of August. And then I won't be back in again for two weeks uh, after that. I'm just looking. I can't even remember what the date is. I think it might be the 21st of August is when I'm back in the office. Uh, so in that time, there will be various people um, who will be in charge. Um, uh, just not me. Oh, you deserve a holiday. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do deserve a holiday. I need a holiday. Um, so, uh, so that's so that's a bit of good news for me, um, mm. and possibly a bit of good news for everybody else <laughs> as well. Who knows? But I shall be away for a couple of weeks uh, in a, in a week or so's time. Now, uh, Chris is investigating. Chris Norman, who's our service development officer now, is investigating us doing a trip to a cinema. And actually, we're looking at the IMAX cinema at, um, at uh, the National Exhibition Centre mm -hmm. in that complex there. Because we want to see if, in cinemas, they often have audio description available, but you often have to, because you know you might be the only visually impaired person in the mm. cinema or one of the very few you often have to wear headphones in order for that to happen uh, Chris finds that really annoying and he thought that it might be an idea if we could experience um, audio description but without the headphones so we're looking at hiring um, a cinema uh, a small cinema uh, uh, it'll be of an afternoon um, to go and watch a film with audio description um, and see if that you know see if that w w would work. So we'll so we'll want to try it out. Uh, if you're interested in that, um, then please do let us know. Uh, we, if we get like up to twenty people, that'll be that'll be a good number, and we may be able to splash out on a on a bigger bus than one of the ones what we've got um, to take you up there. So anyway, if you're interested in that, if you could then, uh, if you could leave a message um, either in reception or with Chris when you run into him, um, but you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll start making a list. So it's, this is interest only at the moment. We haven't, uh, haven't got a date um, planned or indeed a film yet, but if you're interested in that, we'd be very pleased to hear from you.
Um, and finally, uh, just some very sad news that I heard um, a little while ago. Our dear friend Olga Miller um, uh, died this morning. Uh, that's the 26th of um, July. Um, Olga's been coming here for such a long time, and she was uh, particularly sweet and wonderful person. Um, so uh, we shall miss her very greatly, and um, we will... Um, Keep you apprised of any uh, of you know of uh, developments and stuff in terms of her funeral. Um, she's particularly known to the people who come on Thursday. So, anyway, so a little sad note to end on there. But um, uh, but I know that I shall remember her with great fondness uh, because she made me laugh all the time. <laughs> and that, dear friends, is that. Oh well, thank you very much for that. And I'm sure on behalf of this, as we all wish you a very happy holiday. Thank you very much. Mm. So that's about it. Now Sarah's away at the moment, so we are going to have a rather different sports report coming from Nigel, who's looking at the origins of some of our favourite pastimes, and this is taken from the English Heritage website. Let the games begin. Games and sports began as simple folk games played in small towns and villages. Over the centuries, traditional folk games played in villages, towns and schools have evolved into massively popular and hugely lucrative international industries. <coughs> England has often been at the forefront of creating and codifying games and sports. Cricket, football, rugby, darts, badminton, boxing, table tennis, squash and even baseball all have English roots. England took part in the first international rugby match and the first international football match and the first international test cricket match as early as the 1870s. In these following resumes, sports historian Nigel Brassard takes a closer look at seven stories from England's sporting past. Jousting Jousting is one of the world's oldest equestrian sports, and it was arguably one of England's first national sports. Originally a form of medieval military training, it developed into a competitive sport and a way for kings and knights to display their courage and skill. In the 14th century, the Chronicles of Frosiat records the story of a French squire who challenged Joachim Cato, an English squire, to a feat of arms, including a joust. The fighting took place over two days, and eventually had to be stopped after the Frenchman sustained severe injuries. Cato won, but the Earl of Buckingham rewarded the Frenchman with a hundred francs for acquitting himself to the Earl's satisfaction. It was undoubtedly one of the most dangerous sports in history. In 1559, King Henry II of France died after a splinter from his lance pierced his eye. King Henry VIII was badly injured while jousting in 1536. He was rendered unconscious and the ambassador to the Holy Roman Empire wrote that everyone thought it was a miracle he was not killed. There has been a resurgence in competitive jousting in recent years and tournaments now take place around the world, including at our historic sites during the summer. It remains a physically demanding sport, and recently a study showed that competitors have the strength, agility and skills required of today's top athletes. 
chess originated in India in the 6th century, but it didn't reach England until the 15th century. One of the most influential players in the game's history was the Englishman Howard Staunton, who is credited for changing chess from a leisure activity into a competitive sport during the mid-19th century. In 1843, two chess matches were played between Staunton and Pierre Saint-Amand, who was then acknowledged as the best player in the world. Saint-Amand won the first round played in London by three wins, one draw and two losses. Staunton won the second round in Paris by 11 wins, four draws and six losses, becoming the de facto world chess champion until 1851, when he was defeated by the Prussian player Adolf Anderson. Staunton was England's first chess world champion, and is still the only world champion this country has ever had. His other legacies include his organisation of the first international chess tournament in London in 1851, which helped establish London as the world centre for chess. The English chess opening in chess notation number one, ch chapter four, is named in his honour, and the Staunton chess pieces endorsed by him have become the universally accepted standard for both amateurs and professional players. He's commemorated with a blue plaque at Lansdowne Road in Notting Hill. Tennis. Tennis probably has its origins in a French handball game that morphed into real tennis played with rackets on indoor courts. Henry VIII and his great-niece Mary Queen of Scots were both big fans. The Victorian Army officer Major Walter Clopton Wingfield is generally given the credit for inventing the modern game in 1874. He called his version Sverastik, Greek for playing at ball, and sold box sets containing poles, pegs, nets, bats and balls. Charles Darwin had a court built for his family at Down House, and you can still see the remains of it today. In 1875, Wingfield demonstrated his version of lawn tennis to the MCC, the de facto ruling body of real tennis. After evaluating Wingfield's game and other competing versions, the MCC published the Laws of Lawn Tennis. These were adopted and modified by the All England Croquet Club and used when they held their first lawn tennis championship at Wimbledon in July 1877. To this day, Wimbledon is still run by the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, and Wingfield is celebrated as the father of lawn tennis by a blue plaque at 33 St George's Square. Rowing Rowing has its roots in ancient Egypt, but again it was the English who, in the 18th and 19th century, invented the sport as we know it today. Two of the most prestigious rowing events in the world are the Henley Royal Regatta and the Oxford and Cambridge Boat Race. Jack Beresford was arguably England's greatest ever amateur oarsman in the pre-Redgrave era. For rowing aficionados, he's the yardstick by which the nation's rowers are measured. In 1925 and 1926, 
Beresford won the Sculling Triple Crown at the Wingfield Skulls and Metropolitan Regattas London Cup on the Tideway of the Diamond Challenge Skulls at Henley. In both these years, he also won the Philadelphia Gold Cup, which brought with, with it the title of World Amateur Sculling Champion. He won five medals, including three golds, at five successive Olympics, and might have competed at a sixth were it not for the outbreak of the Second World War. He gained a clutch of winners' medals at Henley Royal Regatta in eights, single skulls, double skulls and fours. Beresford is honoured with a blue plaque at 19 Grove Park Gardens, Chiswick, where he lived for most of his life. More recent English rowing triumphs include those of Sir Steve Redgrave, who also won medals at five consecutive Olympic Games and gold in three Commonwealth Games and nine World Rowing Championships. Dame Catherine Granger, who won gold at the 2012 Olympics in London, is England's most decorated female Olympian. Football Some form of football has been played in England for hundreds of years. Today, with an estimated 4 billion fans, it's easily the world's most popular sport. 1872 saw the first international football match and the first FA Cup final, but for most English people there's a particular match that stands out in the history books. The victory by England over West Germany in the World Cup final, played at Wembley Stadium in 1966, is regarded by many as our country's greatest ever sporting achievement. This is the first and only time that England has won the World Cup, and it remains the most watched event ever on British television. The teams were level at two games each at the end of the 90 minutes, and the game went into extra time. Jeff Hurst scored one of the most controversial goals in history, and people still debate whether or not the ball passed over the line, and some people accuse the Soviet linesman of bias. But in the 120th minute, and with the very last kick of the game, Hurst completed his hat-trick and the game was all over. We remember this sporting achievement with a blue plaque at 43 Waverley Gardens, the childhood home of England's extraordinary captain Bobby Moore. Moore became a national icon and was described by the England manager Alf Ramsey as the supreme professional and he said that England would never have won the World Cup without him. The inscription on the statue of Moore at Wembley Stadium describes him as an immaculate footballer and a national treasure. Another significant blue plaque for a football legend belongs to Laurie Cunningham, who became the first black player to represent England in a competitive international match. Cunningham shared the terrace with his parents, who were first-generation immigrants from Jamaica from 1967 until about 1976. He made his professional debut for the East London team Orient, now Leighton Orient, in October 1974, and after scoring 15 goals in 86 league appearances, was snapped up by West Bromwich Albion in March 1977. Cricket The 1981 Ashes series on home turf was one of England's finest. During the third test at Yorkshire's Headingley Cricket Ground, Australia declared 
401 for 9 and put England into bat. The English were bowled out cheaply for 174 runs and so the Australians enforced the follow-on, making their opponents immediately bat again due to scoring significantly fewer runs. England were thought to be in an impossible position. In their second innings, England went on to score 356 runs, including a majestic and explosive 149 not out by Ian Botham. By contrast, Australia scored a disappointing 111 runs with the bat, after an outstanding bowling spell saw Englishman Bob Willis take eight wickets at the cost of a mere 34 runs. The end result was a victory for England by 18 runs. It was only the second time in Test history that the team won after following on. Buoyed by their heroic recovery, the England team subsequently went on to win the series 3-1. Cycling A cycling craze developed in Europe and North America in the late 19th century among both men and women. However, in 1896, the American activist Susan B. Anthony wrote that the sport has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. Englishwoman Beryl Burton is one of the sport's great champions, male or female. She was introduced to cycling by her husband in the 1950s and was soon competing nationally and internationally. Beryl won two road world championships five World Championships pursuit titles and remarkably the British best all-rounder competition for 25 years in a row. Arguably Beryl's most impressive achievement was breaking the 12-hour time trial record in 1967 when she covered 277.25 miles in that time. During her attempt she overtook Mike McNamara and, the story goes, she gave him a licorice all-sort as she passed. Earl's record wasn't beaten by a man until 1969, and no woman has ever beaten it. Earl was appointed an MBE and an OBE. Despite receiving sponsorship offers, Beryl chose to remain an amateur, combining her cycling with work on a rhubarb farm. And so, from a very different sport, we move to Dave and your postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there and welcome to your Postbag. We begin with a message from Carol Bloxham with some helpful information for Bob Syme about visually impaired friendly mobile phones. But of course, such information can be helpful to you too. And that's what Postbag is all about. You know, having a chat and sharing information. Here's Carol. Hello Dave and everybody. Um, this is Carol Bloxham. Um, this really is for Bob Sign. Um, there are, Bob, there are lots of um, different phones out at the moment. Um, actually at the centre, if there's a possibility that you could come in on a Tuesday morning, um, then maybe the, the volunteers will show you what is now available for you. Um, as I say, there are lots of different ones, and um, different ones keep coming up, 
people keep going and getting new ones and all of that sort of thing. So um, it might be an idea, either that or ring in and speak to Hugh, Mark, um, Mark, oh God, I can't remember Mark's surname, but he's one of our volunteers in the devices group. And there's Ian and Roy and one or two others. Jeanette Fowler as well, if you know Jeanette. So um, I'll leave it up to you and um, all the best. I hope you can find something suitable. Bye, everybody. Carol. Thank you, Carol, very much. So there you are, Devices Group on Tuesday mornings where you can learn about mobile phones, etc. Or you can phone Hugh up at the Resource Centre and he'll help you out. I suppose if you're not uh, au fait with mobile phones and other technological marvels, uh, you can learn to adapt and survive. And that's the title of Julia's report. Adapt and survive. Susie said that. We were torch. Susie was talking about the pandemic. She said she hoped it would soon be over. My friend John said he hopes he will get drunk and get arrested. Anyway, Susie said we must change and adapt and everything's going to be all right. Bob Marley said something like that too. Don't worry about a thing cause every little thing's gonna be alright and Jackie where there's a story about a giant in his garden he used to shout at the children called Adam and Eve he told them to stop playing and go away then the sun went in and all the flowers died just like my jasmine plant Maybe the children were playing in my garden and killed my jasmine. I don't remember shouting at them, though. Maybe I'd been on the gin. But the giant adapted, and the children and the flowers and the sun all came back and survived. So he was a nice old giant all the time. Not like my friend John. He would make all the flowers die, and the sun and children wouldn't stand a chance. He's not a nice giant at all. Have a very good week, everybody. I hope you all adapt and survive. Lots of love, Julia. Well, adapting is what Edwina did, because she's figured out a way of using bamboo to train plants up them. Here she is. Here's Edwina. Hi, everybody. It's Edwina. It has come to my notice about the fashion. I often notice what happens with fashion. And the media have discovered the 70s now. So the mm, colours of the clothes and furniture, etc. is brown going into the mm, weaker colours down to mushroom. But the thing is that uh, the fashion is in the garden as well. If you think back to the 70s, if you're old enough like me, to think about the bamboo and rattan that was about with garden furniture, etc. That is all coming back. 
petition was added into Downing Street a couple of weeks ago, and it came out in conversation. I don't, not too sure how widely it's supposed to be known at the moment, but uh, apparently they are going to link with WM between two and six o'clock in the afternoon, which I guess would happen. What I didn't know, though, is that Trissa Dudu will be doing that program, and it does surprise me because. The uh, person who's currently doing that slot on WM now has been around a lot longer than she has. It's a person called Paul Franks, or Franksy as he's affectionately known in the area. And uh, it does surprise me, though I suppose he's getting near to retirement anyway, so maybe it's not surprising. <laughs> but um, what's going to happen after 6 o'clock in the evening, I don't know. Or for that matter, on the weekends. Thank you, Graham. The last time I was in Coventry Station, which wasn't long ago, there was a ticket office there. And uh, tell us what you think about changes in local radio as well. Now, uh, Doreen's adapted to uh, loss of sight, and she's learned to play the piano. Here's how she's done it. Being blind, how did you learn to play the piano? Well, with being blind, to learn piano, totally blind, or partially blind, um, I'd say it's by finger touch. On the piano, there's certain keys that you have to remember, and you've got to feel, you've got to have the feel of the piano, um, really, before you can learn it, really. Um, but once you get the feel of the piano and the notes, you then learn the name of the notes like A, B, C, D and E and F. And then you get G and then you get, um, that's on your white notes. And then on your black notes you get um, E major, A major. And of course your white notes are flat. But you soon get the touch of knowing where the, the notes are because after being totally blind, while you get the feel uh, of the notes being touched, it's your sixth sense that's helping you along with it. It, it can be very hard to some people when I say sixth sense it's how your brain works along with it. But you do get eventually of it. You do whatever you can do. Because shortly after Sheila died, 
Graham and I went for a walk across Cowden Wedge till we came to Alsley Church and we paused outside to think about Sheila and then they invited us into a bereavement group and Graham sat on the piano and played Morning is Broken and I've been going to that lovely group at Alsley Church on a Friday morning at 10.30 till 11.30 ever since. Thank you very much for your comments this week. Please keep sending them in. We love to hear from you. And you could be helpful to other listeners as well. Thank you very much. And bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thank you today for this week's postbag. Now, Margaret's building of significance this week is one called St. Catherine's Well, which is in Beaumont Crescent in Camden. St. Catherine's Well, or Conduit Knob, the smallest and most unusually placed building, is in the curve of a row of 1930s houses in Beaumont Crescent, Camden. It is an ancient spring covered by an early 15th century 10 feet sandstone kennel chapel that stood atop a grassy knoll or knob, hence the alternative name. The earliest mention of it appears to be in the Pittenance's rental, showing it stood on Coventry Priory land in 1410. The spring in 1847 supplied 100,000 gallons a day to Sponen's water supply. Clues point to the well having an ancient origin. The name St. Catherine is attached to many wells dedicated to the sun, the saint's wheel being the sun emperor. There was also a belief that the well led down into underground tunnels guarded by a giant cockerel. It was quite a common story attached to pagan wells that once the water was passed through, you would enter the underworld. The cockerel was thought of as a pagan guardian. As the well later stood on Priory land, it is likely they built the structure over it and rededicated it. The well was tidied up in 1935. Previously, it had stood on a grassy knoll. The author doesn't know if the grass covered the supporting structure and steps, but it is quite likely it did, and therefore the work in 1935 would have exposed and restored what was already there. Coventrians still follow well law into the early 20th century. Newborns were washed in Radford Spring, which it was believed would cure various problems. Thank you to Margaret for that. Now... I'm sure you must know that the Ganges in India is a sacred river and it's often resplendent with colourful flowered petals remembering a dead relative or holy occasion. This article, which is read by Sue, was by Gilvinda Singh reporting on a business turning the discarded petals into vegan leather. When Ankit Agarwal took some visiting European friends to the banks of the Ganges, 
during the annual Hindu festival of Makar Sankranti in January 2015, they were taken aback by what they saw. Tons of rotting flowers, including roses, marigolds and chrysanthemums, were floating on the water, along with other rubbish, turning the river a murky grey. We saw a lot of people were taking a dip in the river, which was dirty. We also saw a trolley filled with tons of discarded petals from a nearby temple being dumped into the river. It was a strange sight for my European friends who began to ask me questions about it, he says. Mr. Agarwal did some research and discovered that 8 million tons of flowers are dumped after worship in rivers across India every year, according to the International Journal of Research. The decaying blooms were polluting the water used for bathing and drinking, releasing toxic pesticides into the rivers. In 2017, Mr. Agarwal and his friend Pratik Kumar launched a start-up Fool, flower in Hindi, collecting used flowers from religious institutions in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh and recycling them into incense sticks and cones and creating jobs mostly for women. But when they spotted a white layer forming on the pile of waste flowers in the factory in 2018, they made an important breakthrough. They realised they could turn the rotting flowers into vegan leather. Our production capacity of incense, sticks and cones was not very high and the unused collected flowers used to pile up in the factory floor, says Nachiket Kuntla, Head of Research and Development at Fool, which is based in Kanpur, an Uttar Pradesh city on the banks of the Ganges. One day we observed a white soft clump on the pile. We found that some microbes had grown over the petals, binding them together in a clump that appeared solid yet also cushiony. We started making biodegradable packaging material from it. Mr Kumar says the team noticed that the outer layer of the packaging material had a velvety touch sensation that we thought was familiar to leather. The idea of recycling flower waste into animal-free leather was born. The discovery could help counter the Ganges problems in more ways than one. The 2,525-kilometre river flows from the western Himalayas through India and Bangladesh, emptying into the Bay of Bengal. It is worshipped as one of India's most sacred rivers and is the site of numerous water-based rituals. However, it is also one of the most polluted rivers in the world and flowers are just the start of it. Kanpur is next to a particularly polluted stretch because the city houses large numbers of tanneries, factories, chemical plants and slaughterhouses that dump untreated waste into the river. Fool's Flether is not only turning a floral disaster into a blossoming new business, it could create an alternative to the tanneries and the health problems they create. 
The team has now made various product prototypes, including sling bags, wallets, trainers and sandals, although they've yet to start large-scale commercial production as the material is still being fine-tuned to international standards. Fleather is already attracting global attention and was a 2022 finalist for the Earthshot Prize that honours innovative environmental solutions. The startup also won India's Best Innovation in Vegan Fashion Award from the animal rights organisation PETA. It has received around £8 million from platforms investing in startups and counts Bollywood actor Ali Abad among its backers. The business has expanded to 242 employees and recycles around 6 tonnes of flour waste every day. Apart from Fleather, it still manufactures incense sticks, cones and organic pigmented powder for Holi, the Indian festival of covers. Monica Chopra, a senior official at Peter India, hailed the importance of the initiative. The tanneries at Kampur are infamous for releasing toxic waste into the Ganges, she says. Even the waste produced during leather production can lead to skin and respiratory disorders. The startup demonstrates that vegan leather can be manufactured in a way that is both sustainable and cruelty-free, while also creating job opportunities for local women. That sounds rather ingenious, and anything we can reuse these days is definitely a good idea, isn't it? Now, we all have people we admire and who are perhaps our heroes, but the author Otto English, in this writing read by Bill, explains why we all need to be maybe a bit circumspect about the heroes we choose to celebrate. As a child of the 70s and 80s, I had fictional heroes galore, including Spider-Man, Indiana Jones and James Bond, I admired other real-life heroes too, figures from history whose eventful lives filled the Ladybird books crammed onto my bedroom shelves. The problem, which I began to appreciate as I grew older, was that a lot of the history had as much bearing on reality as the adventures of Peter Parker or James Bond. It wasn't until I reached adulthood that, I believe it's more important than ever we question where our heroes come from, not least because in recent decades new fake heroes have risen all about us. Take the secular cult of celebrity, which evermore seems to eclipse the divine one of saints. The maturely deceased pop stars make particularly resonant folk saints. Every year, an estimated 500,000 people make the pilgrimage to Elvis Presley's grave at Graceland, for example. On the corner of Central Park in New York, you can visit Strawberry Fields, a shrine to the late Beatle, on Lennon. Yet questioning these, or any of our heroes, can be a risky business, and amount to a kind of heresy. It can be deeply discomforting to be told there's another side to the story, one in which that person did not do such great things. After all, 
There is always a very fine line between heroism and villainy. And the old cliché, one person's terrorist is another's freedom fighter, can be applied to many historical figures. Everyone knows the story of affable RAF pilot Douglas Bader, who lost both of his legs in a pre-war flying accident, then re-enlisted on the outbreak of the Second World War, become arguably the most famous fighter ace of his age. Bader became a celebrity in the post-war years, in large part because his life story was told in the 1956 film Reach for the Sky, portrayed by the hugely likeable Kenneth Moore. Even 40 years after his death in 1982, legend persists. In 2016, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, suggested he was the greatest hero of all time. The real-life barter was very different to the big-screen version. For propaganda purposes, during the war, Bader was promoted by the popular press as a charismatic and handsome fighter ace. Unfortunately, as his fame grew, so did his influence, and he was a key proponent of a flawed strategy known as Big Wing, which would see up to five RAF squadrons sent up to take on the approaching Luftwaffe. The complexity of amassing squadrons was not only time-consuming, but riven with danger. By the time a big wing had managed to form, Luftwaffe were heading home, and when they did engage with the enemy, the huge number of planes involved saw an uptick in casualties and incidents of friendly fire. It might have been portrayed as a success in reach for the sky, but in reality it wasn't. Barber's reason for promoting it was entirely selfish. He was hugely competitive, saw war as a substitute for the sport he could no longer play, and latched onto the strategy in order to see more action. Bader himself was eventually shot down on August 9, 1941, and became a prisoner of war. As he went through a variety of prison camps, his constant taunting of the guards would see his fellow prisoner of wars deprived of rations and privilege. Each time he was transferred out of a camp, was a celebratory mood among guards and prisoners alike. Finally, transferred to Colditz, he blocked the repatriation of his orderly, Alex Ross, on the basis that you came here as my skivvy and that's what you'll stay. It was typical of Bader, who could be extremely arrogant, a terrible bully, particularly of his ground crew and anyone else he deemed beneath him. In Skopje, now the capital of North Macedonia, in 1910, this famous nun later became known as Mother Teresa of Calcutta. After training as a teacher and missionary, she moved to India, where she later established her own order of nuns, known as the Missionaries of Charity. That set her on the path to become one of the greatest religious icons of the 20th century revered and applauded 
her charitable good works in her lifetime, following her death in 1997, she was fast-tracked to sainthood. Beneath that humble exterior, and beyond her Nobel Prize and good works, there was a more complex, less palatable story going on. Despite all the praise for her work with the sick and the destitute, little was done by her order to alleviate the suffering of ill people dying in her mission homes. Incredibly, Mother Teresa did not believe in administering pain relief for the desperately ill. Sanitation was rudimentary at best. Needles were not sterilised, but washed under cold taps meaning infection and disease ran rampant. Despite receiving hundreds of millions of pounds in donations, money was spread thinly and, all too often, not used for the purpose for which it had been given. Indeed, millions of dollars sat unspent in her charity's Vatican bank account as people in her care suffered and died in squalor. Children in her orphanages were often chained to their beds. The elderly and infirm were left on the floor of her hospices, breathing their last in insufferable discomfort. Teresa believed that through pain, God's presence could be more keenly felt. That disregard was extended to her nuns, who were overlooked and discouraged from contacting loved ones even if dying, and worked until they dropped. Millions of us grew up revering Elizabethan sailor Sir Francis Drake as defender of the nation, victor over the Spanish Armada, and circumnavigator of the globe. There's even a curious legend that his snare drum, housed at his former Devon home, is said to beat Whenever England is threatened, a reminder that he's still protecting us from beyond the grave. Drake's buccaneering myth is a corker. The details of his life paint a complex and far less flattering picture. Whilst he did indeed circle the earth between 1577 and 1580, his intent was to make himself rich and famous and he robbed practically everyone he met along the way. He wasn't the first either. Magellan had completed that journey in 1519, 21 years before Drake was born. While it's true Drake helped see off the Armada, Lord Howard was Admiral, in charge of the fleet on the day, and really the victory was his. Yes, Drake bought tobacco and potatoes to Europe. The Spanish had been there a full decade earlier. As for being a privateer, well that's just a polite way of saying he was a pirate. In the 2013 BBC television series Britain at Sea, broadcaster David Dumbleby told how he had been involved in a scheme to bring Drake's lead-lined coffin from its resting place on the coast of Panama on a Royal Navy ship to be buried at St. Paul's Cathedral. There was a problem. 
There was one group you might have thought would be enthusiastic for it, who were completely opposed to the Royal Navy. And why? Well, I think it was because, though he was a national hero, Drake was a pirate. Now from one author to another, it's time for another of Cynthia Townsend's short stories read by Ali. And this one is called The Secret of Sophie's Shed. It was an exciting day for Emma and her partner Tony. They'd just moved into their new home. It was the kind of house that when they first got together, they only dreamed of buying. But a lucky win on the lottery meant that they could afford a decent deposit. The house was a lovely old detached Victorian property in a quiet road. There was a small garden at the front of the house and at the back a large garden in sections that led down to a brook. There were tall trees either side of the property and in the corner of the garden a mass of greenery, something that Emma hadn't noticed when they came to look at the house. She thought it could do with cutting back. It was one of the jobs that was added to the growing list of things to get done. The person they bought the house from was a keen gardener and had left the gardens in relatively good nick. The shrubs that had been planted had started to peep through the soil. The only unkempt part was that clump of bushes and bracken right in the corner, which you couldn't see from the kitchen window. One weekend, while Tony was at the football with his mates, Emma decided it was time to tackle that problem bit of garden in the corner. Armed with a wheelbarrow, some shears, a large scythe and a few hessian sacks, she started to hack at the overgrown mass. It took her a good half hour before she even started to make a headway. After another half hour of hacking away at the branches, Emma saw what looked like a small garden shed. It had been painted green so that's why it probably couldn't be seen through the shrubbery. The more bushes and branches she cut back, the more she could see of this shed. It looked more like a little Wendy house. It had window boxes, which were painted yellow, and the door had a painted red border around it. She could even see what looked like red and white check curtains at the small windows either side of the door. Emma was intrigued. Why was such a pretty little house covered over with so much shrubbery? It was almost like someone wanted to hide it from the world, which was a pity. Now she started to see more of this little dwelling, she didn't want to stop until she could clear it totally of all the branches and the shrubs and the weeds and other garden debris. It's like she was on a mission. Emma was desperate to try and clear the space in front of the door so she could get inside this quaint little place. Another fifteen minutes of hacking and packing, she eventually managed to get to the door. It looked like it hadn't been disturbed for a long time, as the hinges of the door were extremely rusty, and the key and the lock were stuck fast. Emma tugged at the key, trying to free it, and after she spent five minutes or so tapping at it to get some of the rust off, she used some oil in the lock and eventually managed to loosen it so she could turn it. What she saw when she slowly opened the door totally shocked but delighted her at the same time. It looked like a little shrine. It was obviously built for a little girl. You could tell by the way it was painted and decorated. There was a little two-seater couch, 
which on one end sat a beautiful Victorian doll, dressed in a long silken lace dress. She had a mass of blonde hair, which was tied up with a blue ribbon at the back. She wore white stockings and two small handmade black leather boots. It was the kind of doll any little girl would have dreamed of owning. On the other end of the couch there was a toy rabbit, a plush toy wearing a scarf. He had a friendly face, the kind of face that you could tell your secrets to, as you knew instinctively you could trust him, and in times of stress he'd be a good source of comfort. Then there was a little table, over which lay an off-white tablecloth, and on top of that a child's-to-scale tea set, four china cups and saucers, a milk jug, a sugar bowl and a teapot, and four small plates, which would have been used to put cakes on. Looking around further at the shed, Emma could see that there was a painting of a pretty girl holding the doll that was on the sofa. The painting was exquisite. It looked like it could have been painted yesterday, but this wasn't something that could have happened recently because of how long the shed must have been out of sight. The frame that the painting was in was draped in black ribbon and the nameplate at the bottom said Sophie Jacobs, 1868-1876, taken by Scarlet Fever. The shelf below the painting had a black urn on it, which Emma presumed must have been Sophie's ashes. Scarlet fever struck fear in the hearts of Victorian parents. In the late 19th century, it was a leading cause of death in children, killing as many as a third of those who caught the infection. It looked like Sophie had been one of those children, and this little house was a shrine to this dear little girl. In the corner of the shed was a large wooden chest, which was painted black, and in big white letters were the initials S.J., which was surrounded by pretty painted flowers, all the kinds of wildflowers you'd find in the Victorian garden. Emma opened the chest. She was curious as to what she'd find. It looked like a lot of drawings, some watercolours, others in pencil. Obviously drawn by a young child. Drawings of animals and of flowers, and there was one of two adults holding hands with a child in the middle. Maybe this is a painting that Sophie did of herself with her parents. There was a big yellow sun in the corner, and everyone was smiling. The further she delved into the box to look at the drawings, it looked like the moods had changed. Sophie must have drawn these when she started to get ill. The little girl in the middle was no longer holding hands with her parents, but lying down on a garden bench with her parents either side. The sun was not shining in the drawing. There were instead dark clouds with teardrops coming out of them. Emma was sad looking at the change of Sophie's circumstances and the drawings got steadily worse in their creation with no straight lines and very wobbly drawings that looked like they'd been drawn by someone who couldn't hold the pencil as well as they used to. The more Emma looked around this mini tomb the more she felt like she was intruding in someone else's grief. She shouldn't be in there. These weren't her memories or her possessions. This was Sophie's shed, Sophie's life and Sophie's death, and Emma wanted her to rest in peace. She took one last look around and stood in the front of the painting, and, and the urn, and bowed her head and said a little prayer. 
It had obviously been too painful for Sophie's parents to have these things in the house after she died. And it looked like they'd put them in Sophie's happy place, this quaint garden dwelling, and locked it up never to return. Emma locked the door and started to put back as much of the shrubbery as she could. She wanted it to be hidden again so that no one could disturb it and leave darling little Sophie in peace. It took her a while to bury it back behind the garden debris, all that hard work to uncover it, and now it was hidden even better than before. She took the key to the shed out of her pocket and threw it into the brook so that the next person to discover the shed would not be able to open it and disturb its contents. Emma was a bit subdued when she got back to the house. She had a shower, got into a dressing gown, and poured herself a large glass of wine. After an hour, Tony got back from the football in a really good mood, as his team had won. He gave Emma a kiss, and promised her that in the morning he'd make a start on the list of things that needed doing. The mass of weeds, the grass, trees and bushes and debris in the corner, that being top of the list. Oh, no, don't do that, said Emma. I- I've changed my mind. I went down to have a look at it while you were out, and it's full of birds' nests, and there's a little nature reserve, so I just think we should leave it as it is, if that's OK. Sure, said Tony. Besides, you can't really see it unless you know it's there, and if you want to keep it as a little wild nature reserve, then that's fine by me. I didn't really fancy tackling it, to be honest. Emma stretched out on the sofa and smiled. She wasn't going to tell Tony about her discovery. She wanted to let the secret of Sophie Shed stay exactly that, a secret. Now, The Spectator magazine is published every week, but I must admit I've rarely read it. But it always has a readers' competition, obviously in a literary vein, whether it be in prose or poetry. A recent competition asked readers to write a poem in which each line ended in a three-syllable word. The following is slightly risque, but it is amusing. The poem was the winning entry, and this is read by Nigel. Every week, the Spectator magazine invites listeners to enter a competition, which varies each time. And recently, uh, one of their competitions uh, was were invited to provide a poem whose rhyme words are at least three syllables. This poem, which was the winning one, is a little risque, I should say, but I think it's very amusing. The wisdom of Lord Bostock was, to say the least, debatable. For shunning the living ladies, he had purchased an inflatable. He took her home, unpacked her, and he used her energetically, excitedly, delightedly, and finally, frenetically. He never doubted she would bear the strain of his virility, she burst when he was in a pose of minimal stability. As he hit the floorboards, he could feel his fever fracturing and seething curse the shoddiness of modern manufacturing. He'd value to have his vengeance with a fury none could mitigate. Duplicious solicitors encouraged him to litigate. They were the sort whose stony hearts were only ever thrillable by thoughts of affidavits where every syllable was billable. He lost his case, went bankrupt, and gained nothing but publicity. From titillated tabloids who lampooned him with lubricity. The moral of the story is that feminine reality should always be preferred to plastic artificiality. Mm, I hope you found that amusing too. 
Now, every week here at the Resource Centre, if something is going on, and of course, last weekend, they had their summer fate. I hope lots of you managed to get here. But for those of you who didn't, Jave went along to bring you this report. Hello there, welcome to Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind Summer Fate on a very wet and cold day, but I'm sure things will brighten up once we're inside. Okay, hello, I'm inside the Mary Beale room, we've had some lovely food, I'm speaking to Samantha. So, hello, so what brings you along to the summer fate? Hi, so uh, I saw a poster for it a few weeks ago at the bus stop near me, I, I live in Elveston, and uh, sort of thought I'd come along, you know, support, support a local charity and just do something different. So, are you enjoying it so far? Yeah, yeah, it's nice, I've had some nice sandwiches, I'm currently having a coffee, very nice. <laughs> Now, uh, you're involved in a charity yourself. What's that? Yeah, so uh, I, um, I I work for a, a children's charity. We're based over in Radford, and I do their finances. We're called Global Care. Oh, Global Care, yes, yes, heard of it. Yeah, great, fantastic. Yes. Anyway, thanks a lot for coming along to the Summer Fate, anyway. Uh, nice to see you. Yeah, good chatting to you. Take care. Thank Bye. You. Bye. And just arrived in the Mary Beale room is the Lord and Lady Mayoress. Hello. Well, I'm speaking to the Lady the Lady Mayoress Christia. So, so what do you think? So have you enjoyed your visit? Yes, we have enjoyed our visit and there was lots of lots of things here. Lovely corn. They made it at home and a cup of tea and uh, plenty other things. Carrot cake, vegan trifle and there are some stores which I bought a couple of things to raise some more money in. Thank you very much. Enjoying it is very, very nice. And people are very, very friendly. They are, aren't they? It's really nice to see you. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm speaking to the Lord Mayor Councillor Birdie. Can you tell us how you feel about coming along to the uh, summer fate, the resource centre? The resource centre is very important and near to our heart and we are supporting it as one of the Lord Mayor charities. So when we came to know about the summer fair, we were very delighted and we accepted the offer and that's why we are here and it is very, very well attended today. A lot of events are taking place, the mola, selling woolen clothes and books and that and we actually won a couple of prizes as well. So it is very, very encouraging and it's a good day, although there's a little bit of a rain, but that hasn't deterred people coming from different parts of the city to join in and empty their pockets. I request everybody that they need to sort of get rid of all their chains and notes here before they go home so that charity can make some money and put it to proper use. Thank you very much, Lord Mayor. Very nice for you. Thank you. Nice to see you both. Excellent. Thank you. I'm speaking, I'm speaking to Stephen, who's the chauffeur for the Lord Mayor and Lady Mayoress. So, uh, am I right in saying you, you, have, ferried, you have driven uh, chauffeur David Beckham? Unfortunately, not David uh, Beckham, but I have met and taken Dave from Peckham. <laughs> okay. I like it. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you. 
<laughs> Hello, I'm in the marquee in the garden of uh, the resource centre. I'm speaking to Chris. Oh, uh, you and Claire are both working for the resource centre. How's the, how, how are the jobs going? A lot of fun. Um, Claire is under, I mean, as anybody who gets the recent minibus will know, there's a lot of pressure to get drivers. We haven't got enough drivers. Um, we've only got two buses, so we're, you know, we're limited by seats. So uh, she, she does a, a sterling effort um, uh, under quite difficult circumstances. Um, I just have to make things up. So we got our walking group started, um, which is brilliant actually, is a, a cracking group of people. Um, and we, we walk nice and steadily around the Memorial Park every Wednesday. Um, and we, we wind up uh, in the, what's it called, the Park Bistro, which is amazing by the way. Um, and when we get more into it, I'd like to go further afield to places like Canley Ford. Um, my dad really wants us to go right in pools, um, where we tried the recumbent bikes a few weeks ago. Um, there's all these places. Um, so what time does it start, the walk? The walk starts at 10am from the resource centre. Yeah. It's your usual £5 per group. Um, but included in that, if we go anywhere, that'll include the bus from the centre to wherever we go. And it also includes a drink wherever we end up. Um, a non-alcoholic drink in case of the pub, by the way. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, 10 o'clock Wednesdays from the resource centre. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. Sounds great. Come along and join it. Oh, yeah, please do. Yeah, more the merrier. Yeah. You know, seriously, walking, I can't over state how good it is for the you know your physical health your mental health we've got some top sort um all different speeds there's no like pressure to be fast or slow or whatever you just go at your own speed and it's wonderful we've got a couple of dogs so you know even if you don't like walking or humans you can watch the dogs jump into the lake which is quite fun yeah. <laughs> it's all going on <laughs> there is entertainment as well thank you chris thank you well there's two marquees in the garden of Coventry Resource Centre and the, we've, got, we've got the plastic windows and here we are, we're just going out in the way. Hello, I'm speaking to Marjorie Leach and you're on the, the craft store, yes. right? Yes, I'm on the craft store because um, I'm help, a helper in the craft group. Yeah. Yes, and most of our clients have got a little bit of vision. We've only got about four who are really blind completely blind. Two have been blind since birth and the other two did see once. So what kind of things have they made? They do a lot of knitting and they do um, cards and they make coat hangers that they decorate which are very pretty and bags that they put um, a, a, a motif on the front and they're very good canvas bags for shopping and then they also um, do other knitted things like uh, crocheting blankets and they've done um, some toys and we've got lots of lavender bags the people who are totally blind um, like stuff in the lavender bags and they also make a lot of jewellery with beads yeah. and they can do that. Yes, clown dolls, cushion covers, tea cozies, all sorts of lovely things. It's all made by the craft group. Thank you and that's all from the Summer Fate at Coventry Resource Centre. Bye for now.
And that just about brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook. So from the team here, I'm for me, Sheila Allen. It's goodbye till next week.